Royal London. Hello. Thank you for joining this podcast on PS24-6. My name's Claire Moffat and I head up the Intermediate Development and Technical Team at Royal London. I'm delighted to be joined virtually by Justin Corliss, Senior Pension Development and Technical Manager and DB Expert. We're still in lockdown, so apologies in advance for any break in sound quality. This session is CPDable. So what are we talking about today? Well, on Friday the 5th of June, the FCA released their long-awaited response to the 2019 consultation paper CP1925 on pension transfer advice, with policy statement PS20 forward slash 6 named pension transfer advice feedback on CP1925 and our final rules and guidance. In an unusual move, on the same day the FCA released non-handbook guidance consultation CG20 forward slash 1, which outlines good and poor practice in the field of pension transfer advice and invites comment from the industry on it. Both these papers are aimed at improving consumer outcomes for those seeking advice on pension transfers and to address regulator-held concerns that too high a proportion of consumers seeking advice are being advised to transfer. From the four thematic reviews the regulator has undertaken on pension transfers since 2015, they deduced that approximately 69% of advice has resulted in a recommendation to transfer. Now, given the regulator's long-held stance that retaining their defined benefit pension will be in most people's best interests, this high conversion rate is at odds with what they expect to see in the market. So over the next 30 minutes or so, we will look at specific points in the policy statement and expand on these where necessary with content from the guidance consultation. As these papers are both quite lengthy, we won't be able to touch on every issue there is, so we'll try to keep our focus on the areas impacting the provision of advice. Hi Justin. Hi Claire, how are you? Good, thank you. So perhaps the biggest headline from the consultation paper was a proposal to ban contingent charging for most consumers seeking advice on pension transfers. Has the policy statement provided clarity on this? Thanks, Claire, and hi, everybody. I hope this podcast finds you well. Uh, yes, although it wasn't too much of a surprise, I don't think. The FCA have decided to ban contingent charging, except in a small proportion of cases, which they refer to as the carve-out. These rules come into effect on the 1st of October 2020. So tell me more about this carve-out. Uh, this carve-out, also effective from the 1st of October 2020, caters for individuals with specific identifiable circumstances which may make a transfer more suitable for them, but who may not be able to uh, pay for this advice. This covers two distinct groups. The first one, those with life-limiting illnesses where life expectancy is likely to be below age 75 and cannot afford to pay for advice on a non-contingent basis. The guidance paper, GC 20-1, provides more detail on that. And the next one, those experiencing serious financial difficulty. While the FCA does not define precisely the requirements to meet this condition, there are examples including a definition of over-indebtedness from the Money and Pension Service and further examples in that guidance consultation. In either case, it appears quite a high bar and the FCA state in the policy statement that they expect only around 11% of consumers are likely to meet the carve-out conditions. 
The FCA also state that qualifying for the carve-out does not make somebody automatically suitable for a transfer, and that once the full advice process has been completed, that they expect some consumers in this group will be advised to remain in their DB scheme. Going back to the ban on contingent charging, can you describe how this will work? Yeah, assuming a client does not qualify for the carve-out and therefore is subject to the contingent charging ban, there are a few hard rules which I'll cover off first. So the first one, firms must charge the same amount for advice on pension transfers and conversions, I'll just say pension transfers from here on in, whether or not the advice results in a recommendation to transfer. This requirement covers all related and associated charges, such as advising on where the funds will be invested and implementation charges. So implementation charges will typically include arranging the transfer and setting up the new arrangement. It's perhaps also worth mentioning here the existing requirement that firms don't charge a greater ongoing advice charge for pension transfer business than they would for ongoing advice on funds that were not a result of a pension transfer. So as you can see, it looks pretty watertight. And to clarify, as I've already been asked this a few times since the paper came out, this means a firm cannot charge one fee for the advice and a separate fee for arranging the transfer and establishing the new plan. I should point out, this is also the case for employer or trustee funded advice. So if employers or trustees arrange for a firm to provide advice to the scheme membership funded by the employer or the trustees, the advice fee must be the same irrespective of whether the advice is to transfer or not. So are the FCA saying that they expect all firms to charge the same? No, far from it. In fact, they make the point in the, the policy statement that the 3,000 to 3,500 advice fee figure in the consultation paper was not supposed to imply a price cap. Furthermore, the FCA state that it is acceptable to have different charging levels for different categories of clients, such as existing clients, introduced clients, or maybe those with multiple DB schemes. There may also be instances uh, advice firms may use a different charging level because they're not doing part of the process. Perhaps for an overseas client, say, where the advisor is not selecting the investment strategy or establishing the receiving plan, but they still have to be non-contingent. There are a few references in this policy paper that suggest firms would be well served to ensure that they can equate the fee charged to an hourly rate for the work done or some other quantitative measure. So what about situations where there are two advisors or firms involved in advising the client? So perhaps one providing the advice and the other advising on the investments and choosing the destination plan. The ban applies across to advisor models used within the UK. So where one firm gives the transfer advice and another firm gives the investment advice on where the funds may be invested if the transfer proceeds, both firms must levy charges that they collect whether or not the transfer goes ahead. The guidance consultation offers best practice on this in section 5.52. To be clear, the advice fee charged for full advice needs to be on a non-contingent basis and the fee charged in a two-advisor model should be the same as if it w would be if one advisor was conducting the whole process. 
So the ban seems quite comprehensive. The FCA must have found significant evidence that contingent charging is causing harm in the market then. Given the level of disruption the ban on contingent charging is likely to cause in the market, as contingent charging is the prevalent charging structure, you'd think there must be definitive evidence of this resulting in poor outcomes for consumers. But there isn't. The FCA acknowledges it's very difficult to prove statistically a causal link between contingent charging and suitability. They say this is compounded by contingent charging being so prevalent in this advice space that it's difficult to make a robust comparison between outcomes where contingent charging isn't, it is and isn't used. However, the FCA has pushed ahead with the ban anyway, and they offer a number of reasons for this in the policy paper. Now, they are there is a clear conflict of interest for advisors in a contingent charge model where there are only two outcomes, recommendation to transfer or to stay in the DB scheme. I don't think anyone denies there's an obvious potential for a conflict of interest if the advisor only has two potential outcomes and only one of them results in the advisor being remunerated. But that doesn't mean it's automatically impacting on the quality of advice. In fact, when looking at the regulator's most recent thematic work, which was also released on the 5th of June, the results from phase four show a significant improvement in suitability rates of files checked in 2018 and 2019, compared with the low point of advice suitability in 2017. It's worth remembering that 2017 was when the regulator began issuing messages and guidance to the industry regarding DB transfers post-pension freedoms. So it could be argued that improved suitability was evident once these measures began being implemented by firms in 2018 and 2019 without the ban on contingent charging. Next point they raised was there is a coincidence rather than a causal link of recommendation to transfer and contingent charging and that most firms use contingent charging. Following on, they made the point that carve out caters for those who genuinely can't afford to pay for advice on a non-contingent basis. I'll speak your pardon, on a contingent basis. And that most people won't be materially harmed by staying in their DB scheme. Of course, the danger here is that some people for whom a transfer may have been suitable may not qualify for the carve-out, but may be put off taking advice as they cannot afford a potentially multi-thousand-pound advice fee which is payable even if the advice is to stay in the DB scheme. There's also a concern that this could result in a significant increase in the number of insistent clients, those who choose to proceed against the advice of their pension transfer specialist generally to transfer when the recommendation is not to. I understand FCE intends to mitigate the impact of the ban on contingent charging through a new form of advice called abridged advice. So, yeah, let, let me know a bit more about that. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how it's going to work? I can tell you a bit more about it, but how it works or rather is implemented by different firms will only become clear once it's up and running from the 1st of October 2020. The policy statement makes it clear firms cannot provide abridged advice before this date. 
Abridged advice is a, a short form of advice for pension transfers, which will still need to be provided or checked by a pension transfer specialist. And that pension transfer specialist will need to provide suitability, a suitability report if the recommendation is not to transfer. This short form of advice enables the advisor to, and there's two outcomes, provide the consumer with a recommendation not to transfer or tell the consumer it's unclear from the information available in the abridged advice process whether they would benefit from a transfer. The aim is that abridged advice will be a low-cost solution and advisors are able to provide this form of advice free of charge if they wish. Furthermore, if a client is charged for abridged advice and then proceeds to full advice with that firm, the abridged advice charge is deducted from the full advice charge to ensure clients aren't charged for the same piece of work twice. The abridged advice process will include a full fact find and risk assessment for the client and in a change from the initial uh, proposal in the consultation paper can involve the advisor collecting further information on the seeding scheme. So abridged advice will consider the risks involved in staying in the scheme and the risks to transferring and, and losing safeguarded benefits. Abridged advice could also be effective means of identifying those clients who are eligible for the carve-out. However, the advisor cannot produce an appropriate pension transfer analysis, an APTA or a transfer value comparator, a TVC, or consider the consumer's proposed receiving scheme. If any of these activities are undertaken, it would constitute full advice, which would have to be charged accordingly. It's also worth noting that abridged advice does not satisfy the requirement to take advice before transferring benefits. So abridged advice alone will not be sufficient for the same or another regulated firm to arrange a transfer for the client. Full advice is required for this. The regulator states they expect that when abridged advice results in an unclear outcome and the client proceeds to full advice, this will still result in some recommendations not to transfer. So do you think most firms still active in this market will offer abridged advice? <laughs> I was kind of hoping you wouldn't ask that. Uh, the short answer is I don't know. I expect some will, but there are a few factors to consider in this. Firstly, there is some sentiment within the industry that abridged advice actually includes a lot of the work a pension transfer specialist needs to do in the full advice process. This, combined with the need to produce a suitability report for neg negative recommendations and that the firm remains liable for the advice, raises the question of how much lower some firms will set the abridged advice charge than the full advice charge. If the difference is small, it brings into question how effectively this works for consumers. Now, at the other end of the scale, some firms may choose to offer abridged advice at a very low, say maybe a 250 or 500 pound fee, or a nil cost to the client. In this instance, the advice firm faces the challenge of affordability, where multiple hours of pension transfer specialist time is taken up conducting or checking abridged advice and producing suitability reports for negative recommendations. So lots of work for highly skilled pension transfer specialists with ongoing liability for the advice, but with little or no remuneration. 
Perhaps this is workable for firms, but it's hard to see how on a large scale. One possible outcome is that firms operating or on a low or nil abridged advice charge only make this advice available to those with a certain level of scheme benefits or above a particular age or some other factor where the firm believes a positive recommendation is more likely. No doubt there will be some firms that go for a middle ground too, perhaps charging uh, half or a quarter of their full advice charge. We need to wait for the dust to settle on this before we have a full understanding of how firms will operate this form of advice. But given the regulator's keenness to avoid any form of gaming of the contingent charging ban, you'd imagine that instances of low or nil charge for abridged advice and a very high conversion rate for those clients proceeding to full advice would raise a red flag and perhaps invite investigation from the FCA. So those are some pretty significant changes and I'm aware the regulator has made comments in this policy statement about the use of workplace pensions plans as the destination for transferred funds. Can you tell us a little bit more about that please? Yeah, isn't it interesting the, the difference a single word can make? In consultation paper 1925, which was the precursor to this policy statement, the regulator proposed strengthening its requirement for advisors advising on pension transfer business to consider the default investment within the workplace pension where one exists. The new rule builds on the existing requirement, which was to demonstrate that any alternative pension plan the client is transferred to is at least as suitable as the workplace pension, to the advisor having to demonstrate that it is more suitable than the workplace pension. That's the, that's the difference that a, a word can make that I'm referring to. The reasons the FCA put forward for this strengthened position are as follows. Charges are capped in the default arrangement for a workplace pension. Default arrangements of the workplace pension are designed to be appropriate for all members of the workplace pension without taking ongoing advice. It will reduce the level of transfers involving unnecessarily complex products with high product charges. It reduces the potential for a conflict of interest, which could arise if the advisor is likely to be able to levy an ongoing advice charge if the recommendation is to transfer. And finally, they say members benefit from the protection afforded by independent governance committees, IGCs, or trustee boards. Firms that offer a restricted range of products, or those who are independent and use a panel of products, will still need to adhere to this rule. This will also include vertically integrated firms who may usually recommend from a range of in-house solutions. They will also have to consider the workplace pension where one exists. To further demonstrate the extent to which the regulator wishes to see the workplace pension considered, where a member has an existing workplace pension, a comparison of this needs to be included in the one-page suitability summary issued to clients in advance of the transaction. An example suitability summary is available in Act 2 of the policy statement on page 65, and I would urge you to have a look. The requirement to include the workplace pension in this suitability summary report comes into effect 
not surprisingly, on the 1st of October 2020. Now, I know from discussions since this was proposed in the consultation paper that some people involved in this market disagree with the regulator's assumption that investing in the workplace pension default option decreases the need for ongoing advice, especially as ongoing advice covers much more than simply the investment strategy. The advisor for the workplace pension scheme and the advisor advising on the pension transfer will generally not be the same person, and probably not even from the same firm. It will be interesting to see if workplace pension plans can facilitate ongoing advisor payments, even on an ad hoc basis, to the advisor who does not look after that scheme. Well, that leads me very nicely into the next point I was going to ask you about empowering customers. So the FCA devotes a whole section in the policy paper to this. So can you give us an idea of what they're driving at here? I'll do my best. Uh, it's quite multifaceted, so I'll, I'll endeavour not to leave anything out. Uh, in consultation paper 1925, the regulator proposed changes to improve charges disclosure, suitability reports and consumer understanding during the advice process. These proposals were designed to empower consumers and have a positive effect on the value for money of advice. The first point is to do with the initial charge disclosure. The new rule states that before uh, firms provide regulated advice, on, regulated advice on a pension transfer, they must send a letter of engagement to the client that sets out in monetary terms the amounts the client will pay for abridged advice, full advice and any subsequent ongoing advice. So if you normally charge as a percentage of the fund value, you need to express this as a pounds and pence figure too. I appreciate some of you will be thinking you, you may not know the cash equivalent transfer value at this stage of the advice process, which can make it very difficult to arrive at a fee, especially if you do charge as a percentage of the fund. The best practice um, example in the, in the guidance consultation in section 3.4, page 21, offers an example informing the, the, uh, the pound figure initial charge for different levels of transfer value. So that will give a little bit of clarity on that. However, once the firm knows the transfer value, they need to provide the client with a personalised charge communication based on the actual transfer value in pounds and pence. This needs to happen before providing the advice. This document needs to disclose the initial and ongoing advice charges you expect to levy in the first year, assuming the funds remain invested. Then there are the enhanced disclosure rules we touched on when we were discussing the workplace pension. Firms must include a one-page summary limited to one side of A4 at the front of all transfer suitability reports requiring a pension transfer specialist. Now, the FCA explained in the policy statement that the one-page summary must include charges disclosure including ongoing advice and all product charges they expect to levy in the first year if a transfer goes ahead. The advisor recommendation, which clearly sets out whether the consumer should transfer. Pension risk, a statement on the risks of pension transfer. Ongoing advice, information about any ongoing service provided. If the advisor proceeds with the pension transfer, and then the revalued DB income the member would expect to receive if they remain in the DB scheme. In addition, 
Firms must give information on the amount payable in cash terms for the initial advice for the pension transfer in the one-page summary. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I would urge you to look at Annex 2 of the policy statement for an example of this. The last point I want to touch on with regard empowering customers is, the ch is checking the consumer understands the advice. Firms providing pension transfer advice must get evidence that the client can demonstrate they understand the risks to them of proceeding with the pension transfer before finalising the recommendation and keep a record of this evidence. Now, you could spend all day trying to define how to do this and still not get agreement across the board. So instead, I'll direct you to section 6.5 of the guidance consultation for an example of best practice. Now, as with most of the changes in this policy statement, the new rules around client empowerment come into effect on the 1st of October 2020. Now, I've heard that there's some changes around the CPD requirement for pension transfer specialists too. Can you explain what these changes will mean for advisors? Yes, these are designed to enhance pension transfer specialists' knowledge and understanding of the advice process. Pension transfer specialists will now need to undertake a minimum of 15 hours CPD each year specifically focused on pension transfer advice. Now this is in addition to any other existing CPD requirements that an advisor may need to meet for other types of advice. At least five of these 15 hours must be provided by an independent provider external to any firm that employs or contracts services from the pension transfer specialist. So, so not influenced by the firm's own view, basically, is what they're driving at. Nine of the 15 hours must be structured CPD. The other six can be unstructured. Now, where a pension transfer specialist completes CPD in relation to activities other than acting as a pension transfer specialist, for example, retail investment advisor CPD, this must not count towards the pension transfer specialist CPD requirements. These rules also come into force on the 1st of October 2020. This means that pension transfer specialists can start their pension transfer specialist CPD year from the 1st of October 2020 or from a date within, 12, within the following 12 months that aligns with another form of CPD. Now, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the FCA recently published guidance to let individuals carry over uncompleted CPD hours from one CPD, CPD year to the next for CPD years ending before the 1st of April 2021. They are not applying this guidance to the pension transfer specialist CPD as they consider that the new pension transfer specialist CPD requirements are an essential part of improving advisor competence to address the harm in this market as soon as possible. Okay, so before we finish up, there are just one or two other points I'd like to touch on. And the first of these is triage for pension transfer clients. Does the policy statement provide any insight into this? Um, yes, a little bit, but before we go into that, I think it's important that everyone is aware of what triage is and what it aims to do. In fact, I can quote directly from the guidance consultation here. Uh, triage services are a form of guidance to give the 
customer enough information about safeguarded benefits and flexible benefits to enable them to make a decision on whether to take advice on a conversion or transfer of pension benefits. So triage services should not be delivered in a way that steers a consumer towards a specific choice. A number of firms now choose to outsource the triage process to an independent provider to remove any danger of inadvertently crossing the boundary into advice. I've heard many pension transfer specialists over recent years say that it would be beneficial if triage was relaxed to some degree to enable a greater level of filtering without crossing the advice boundary. But as the FCA point out, the advice boundary is determined by legislation. So a legislative change would be required to alter this and it certainly hasn't been forthcoming thus far. The policy statement predominantly focuses on the use of RAG, red, amber, green, rated questionnaires and decision trees as educational or triage tools. The conclusion is the use of RAG rated questionnaires and decision trees is likely to cross the boundary into advice and as a result these are not to be used in the triage process. Now this rule is almost immediate and comes into effect from the 15th of June 2020. Uh, I won't discuss triage any further other than to say it's covered quite comprehensively in the guidance consultation beginning in section 3.9 on page 23. Well that's quite a lot for everyone to take in so we might leave it there but before we do is there anything else you want to raise that we haven't touched on so far? Uh, there's a multitude of other things we could comment on here but uh, one thing I particularly want to draw advisors attention to is another document the FCA released on the 5th of June. They were very busy that day and that's named Defined Benefit Transfers Further Update on Our Work. This is an update, not surprisingly, on the findings from the various thematic reviews they've undertaken since 2015. It's not very long so can be easily read and on page two it outlines the most common areas the regular identified material information to pension transfer advice was not collected. They refer to these as material information gaps and these contribute to unclear advice outcomes. The two specific areas of uh, common material information gaps they quote are anticipated income and expenditure in retirement and how this may fluctuate and objectives and the role their, their pensions play in meeting those objectives. So I would say that for pension transfer specialists we know that that is an area they're saying that there is often material advice uh, information gaps in there that would be an area that I would be looking at my files previously and going forward to make sure that we've comprehensively covered those sections. Now much of the guidance consultation will be helpful with improving processes in these areas and section 4.3 beginning on page 27 could be particularly helpful. Well, thank you very much, Justin, um, for spending so much time over the last few days reading and considering the various papers. We hope that this session has been useful for you and please speak to your Royal London contact if you need any further help. Watch out for more information on this topic. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Royal London.